Um, so we're currently in a sermon series um, called Unwavering Joy, a journey through the book of Philippians where we are talking through how the gospel brings true joy to every believer. And um, this morning we are going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Um, so if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and uh, start turning there. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please find one um, under one of the seats near you. And um, if you don't own a Bible, we're just going to invite you to keep that Bible as a gift from us. Um, so if you are there at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, would you uh, please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, guys. It's good to see you. Welcome once again to Providence. Uh, my name is Eric, if you don't know me. Um, and just want to, once again, just thank you guys for making us part of your week. Uh, like she said, we've been in the book of Philippians, and we're continuing to talk about joy. Uh, I'm excited to get into that today. Um, and I, I was debating on... on how to start this. I didn't want to make you guys jealous, but I want to tell you something very cool, okay? I'm not boasting here, but I am the proud owner uh, of a 2008 pair of Cabela's uh, fly fishing waders, okay? If you don't know what fishing waders are, it's these really cool boots attached to pants, okay, that you slide into like a kid's onesie. You pull up, and they strap on, and you can walk, no joke, up to here in water without getting wet, okay? It's a beautiful thing. So I remember when I was 16, I got into fly fishing all of a sudden. I was really excited about it. I'm from West Virginia. You probably heard me say that a thousand times. I'm very proud of it because that's really the only thing you can be proud of in West Virginia is that you're from there. And um, I, I, got these, I got my grandparents to invest in these expensive waders that I couldn't afford, and I got them, and they were like the best thing that I ever owned. I was so excited about these waders. I went fishing all the time. I was looking for excuses to use them, right? Like, it's not like every day that I found myself just fishing in the creek or whatever. And so I would look for excuses to put on my waders. And not only were these just waders with boots attached to them, but they had a um, slip-resistant sole to the bottom of them. So I could walk in the water on the rocks and not slip. And this is one of the greatest things I've, I've ever uh, 
owned. And to this day, I still have them. Every time we move houses or apartments or whatever, uh, my wife always gives me that look like, is this the time we're going to get rid of them because you haven't used them in seven years? Uh, but I still haven't got rid of them. They're still in my garage. And even the slip resistant sole are now off of them. But I still plan on using these waders because I love them so much. All right. So I don't want to make you jealous, but I was thinking, um, you guys saw how big the lottery got, right? It was like a 1.6 billion or something like that. I think someone won in South Carolina. I'm not judging you if you played. I wish you would have won that. Okay, that would have been awesome. Uh, but I was thinking as that came out, like things like that, like I own these waders, right? Uh, if I was, uh, and it's very valuable to me, I love these waders, I, I love fishing, I love getting a chance to do that and use them. But if I were to win uh, the lottery right now at $1.6 billion, I feel like those awesome 2008 Cabela's fly fishing waders would decrease in value, would they not, Right? Like now that I have $1.6 billion, I could buy 10,000 of those waders to have backups in different colors if I wanted to, so they could match my hats, right? Or something like that. And so uh, what happens is when, when we all of a sudden gain something that is way grander, way bigger than what we currently have, it seems like our value system changes, right? It changes. Like what, what, was once valuable now becomes a lot less valuable because of the value that you get with this other thing. Uh, and in the same way as Christians, that's what happens to us. That's what happens at conversion, okay? It's not just that um, at one moment you were destined for hell and the next moment you were destined for eternity in heaven, though that definitely happened as you come to Christ and believe in Christ. But there is a fundamental change in your value system, Okay, what once was dear to you, was of utmost value, has been 180 flopped. And so now, instead of what you once desired, your achievements, your goals, etc., have now become a lot less value compared to having Jesus Christ. And this is uh, what Paul is saying in this text. And what I want to dive into today and remind us today, as we've been reminding us uh, ourselves each and every week through the book of Philippians, to take joy in Christ because he is of the most value, right? And in this text, this is one of the clearest texts in all the Bible. Um, I would probably be better off just to read it to you and we could just pray and sing again, right? Because it's so clear and awesome uh, about how worthy Christ is of all our affection. And so I'm excited to jump in the, into this today. Um, do my best not to take long. We're just going to walk through the text together. Uh, but I would love to just pray. Uh, just pray and ask God to speak to us. So if you uh, bow your heads with me and join me, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that even when we don't feel like we want to hear your word, even when we don't feel like we want to read it or think about it, God, that by the power of your spirit, you can still break through our hard hearts and you could open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. And God, that is my simple prayer this morning, is that you would help us to see again, or maybe for the first time, how precious you are. God, of how much value you are, how worthy you are of all our affection. Um, and, and God, that that would bring just freedom there's so much bondage when we begin to value other things above you. There's so much uh, disappointment when we are reaching to find joy in other things that are not you, God. And so I just pray that you would free us from that today, that you would, uh, in a new and fresh way, through the power of your word, that, that you would bring that to light. And, and that we, uh, as we close out in song today, and as we... Um, 
leave today that we would rejoice, as the Bible says, with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And so God, help that to be reality today. We pray in confidence and in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Cool. Um, so like I said, I just want to walk through the text to kind of see what Paul's saying here. I kind of gave you the gist of what we're talking about, but there's just so many cool things in this. So uh, let's just start in verse one. Let's kind of talk about some things. Um, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I love this. This is like a side pistol weapon for every, every parent in here, right? Uh, and it's awesome, right? Like he's saying, one, he's reminding us, guys, rejoice. This is what he's been talking about the whole time in the book of Philippians. He's talking about rejoicing in God, despite your circumstance, despite what's going on, because in all of those things, God is for you, not against you. God loves you. God has died for you. You are his, and there is nothing in this world that could take that away, right? So rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And he says, to, to write these same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. So I love he says, no trouble. Paul likes repeating himself, uh, and he also said, it's safe for us. For us to hear the same truths, the same doctrine, the same gospel over and over and over and over again should be no trouble for us and it is safe for us, right? We must persist in these things. We constantly, every single day, we must remind ourselves of the gospel. We must hear the gospel. This is why we live in community with one another because we're constantly reminding each other of the same truths. And it is the very same truths of the Bible that give us life, that give us fullness, that give us joy over and over and over again. So Paul is saying, I don't care if this sounds repetitive, okay? I'm gonna keep writing these things to you, keep reminding you of these things because it is vital for your soul. It's safe for you. There is safety in hearing the same things. Um, so that's important. Um, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for evil, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so this just gives us a little snapshot. So he's telling them, rejoice, I'm writing the same things. And Paul starts to speak into the situation here going on at the church in Philippi. Uh, there were these people called the, the Judaizers. And, and basically what they would do is they would, for people who converted uh, to Christianity, specifically Gentiles that were converting to Christ, that were becoming Christians, they were trying uh, to put... Uh, some weight of the Old Testament law on them that wasn't supposed to be there. So, um, for example, if you were a Gentile Christian and you came to know Christ, they, they would now try to make you be circumcised, right? They, they would try to make you begin to adhere to uh, a lot of the Old Covenant laws that do not apply to us anymore. Yes, the moral law of God still stands. Uh, we are still have to be in obedience to that, but there was all these like ceremonial laws and different things that they did in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that were no longer our responsibility. And these Judaizers were coming in, and Paul's got some strong words. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. He's got some strong language against these guys. These guys were preaching a false gospel. It was a gospel that said, yes, Christ, but also this. It was not the gospel that we know and love, which is I have done nothing to earn my salvation. Christ won it all for me, and now I am his for eternity because he died in my place. He took my punishment. He, he took my sin uh, upon him, and he gave me his righteousness, and now I'm clean, right? Now I'm a child of God, and now I have eternity with Christ to look forward to. That is the, the pure gospel that we believe, and these guys are preaching a false gospel. 
So Paul calls these guys dogs because they were contentious and vicious and, and trying to um, manipulate them. Uh, he calls them evildoers because preaching a false gospel is an evil thing that leads people astray, right? And he called them uh, those who mutilate the flesh. That was in reference to circumcision. If you don't know what that is, you can look that up later or ask your doctor. But uh, it was a, basically a ceremony that would happen, right? It would happen for all the young boys in the Jewish culture. And it was a sign from God that they were a part of God's chosen people that he had uh, chosen to, to, to be his people on the earth and to spread his glory, to spread his, his fame, right? The, the, the Israelites. Uh, but Paul, he goes on to say how we are the true circumcision. So yes, there was an old covenant sign of physical circumcision that would happen as proof that you are part of the people of God, a reminder of God's covenant to love uh, his people, right? But now we can see in the New Testament, Paul's saying, but we are the true, the true real circumcision that we worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what he's saying is we are the people with the true gospel, right? With the true God. We don't put confidence in the flesh, which is, is basically saying our works, right? Like our ability to earn favor with God, our ability to get God to love us, like we put no confidence in our ability to make God love us and our ability to obey God perfectly and our, our, our ability to earn our way into heaven, right? Like Paul is saying, this, this is not a gospel where it's like, you know, if we're good enough people. Like a, a lot of us may have believed that at one point, maybe still believe that, or at least culturally, generally, a lot of people in the South believe that, hey, I've been a decent person, so one day God's just gonna kind of laugh and give me a pass because I've been all right, right? And he's gonna let me in because I did okay and I wasn't a, a murderer or something, and so I'll, I'll get in. But Paul's saying, no, no, we are the true circumcision, those who really have Christ, the true pure gospel, and in that we can rejoice. Now, because of that going on, Paul's pretty angry, okay? He's angry at these guys. He's got some strong words for these guys that are preaching a false gospel uh, that are taking away from the joy that we have in receiving the righteousness of Christ uh, and putting some uh, unlawful law onto us that we have to obey to earn favor with God. And so uh, I love what Paul does here. He does this a few times in the Bible, and Paul's like one of the only guys that can get away with this, okay? He just begins to talk about himself uh, in such a way where he's like, hey, if you think that you're a good person, if you think that you're awesome, if you think you have something to boast about, why don't you sit down and let me tell you a little bit about my accomplishments? And Paul does this from a pure heart, obviously. He's not just using this as an example to, 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 to bolster himself, and we'll see that. But here's what he says. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then he goes on to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as, as loss for the sake of Christ. And so um, Paul is showing you that if anyone has reason to boast, if anyone would have reason to boast, which no one should, he's making that clear. He's saying, I, I got some reasons. Uh, and, and I just want to look at this because Paul, when he says that he counts like all things, the gain that he had as loss compared to knowing Christ, he's actually got some things to lose here, okay? Paul wasn't just some nobody uh, that just kind of came to know Christ, had pretty much nothing to lose. Like, I might as well risk it anyways and lose everything for Christ because I got nothing. Paul was someone from an earthly standpoint, if you will, 
They had a lot to lose, right? Let's just go through some of these things. Um, and, and I would kind of sum them up to say, Paul had a lot to gain because of his, uh, or he had a lot to lose rather because of his religious gain through his heritage and, and through his actual actions and also through his status among people. And let's look at a few of these things, okay? Circumcised on the eighth day, which was according to God's law in the Old Testament. He was of the people of Israel, even knew the tribe in which he was from, and he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so he was purely and absolutely a part of God's chosen people. Uh, and in this day, in this culture, this was a big deal, right? If you were not a part of God, if you were not pure Israelite, not a Hebrew of Hebrews, you'd be, you'd be called things like dog. You'd be considered uh, less than and cast out and not worthy of God's covenant, right? Um, and so he's saying, I'm part of those people. I have this religious status. He goes on to say, as to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were religious leaders that were um, really well-versed in their Bible. They knew their Bible better than anyone. They were also considered to be the most honored men among the people of God because they were the holiest of holy of the people. And so he was a Pharisee to the T. He trained under some of the greatest Pharisees of all time. Um, he says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. So he wasn't lazy in his religion. He wasn't like just kind of struggling to pick up his Bible, wasn't sure what to do. This guy was passionate, so passionate that when something came against his religion, he was willing to um, take part in and helping in the killing of other people that were coming against that. He was literally getting letters so he could go to other towns and get people arrested. Like he arrested all the people in his town, so he had to go to the next one and start arresting them. He was zealous for God, though he thought. Um, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, so outwardly, not from the heart, obviously, but outwardly, he was obeying God's law to a T over and over and over again. So, uh, and from a religious standpoint, Paul is saying, I have uh, a lot to be proud of in that sense, right? He's got a lot to lose. Uh, not only that, but status before other people. I mean, think about that, right? Like he, Paul was one of the most honored men, being a Pharisee, being a religious leader like that, being someone who was just um, crazy into his religion in this culture, which was a very religious culture, uh, Paul had, uh, he had a lot of status before people. And so for him to say, I count those gains as loss, as trash, as nothing, to me is a big deal, right? That's like you saying all, all of your status before your friends, before your coworkers, before people, uh, all your status that you've built on social media and all these things, etc. for you to say, I don't care about any of those things. That's a big deal. He had a lot, a lot to lose, what does it mean to count things as loss? Well, when we talk about losing things, we're not just talking about physically losing things, like giving things up, though that would definitely apply in this context. But for him, like I said before, it was a valuing that had changed. It was a whole, his whole value system had shifted. And so once what he held dear, which was his religious accolades, his accolades from people, his accomplishments, now have become total loss. And this may not look so religious for you, uh, I may look like other things, but Paul was counting all things as lost. But I, um, and even his, his religious gains, his very life was all loss. Um, and I love that in verse 8, just in case you thought you were getting out of this, he says, I count all things as loss uh, for the sake of, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So every single thing uh, in Paul's life he counted as trash in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. And this is... Uh, a beautiful thing, and I, I want to talk about this. And so Paul is communi communicating to us that true loss is true gain, okay? True loss is true gain. 
Uh, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't like he had nothing to lose. It wasn't like, well, I might as well risk it because I got nothing now, right? No, he actually had a lot of things to lose. But in his mind, that was really true gain. To, to count things as lost, to lose his achievements and his things was gain for him. Just kind of read the text to get this feel. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And so my point is this, when we are truly converted to Christ and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into Christ's kingdom, as I said earlier, there's a fundamental shift in our values. What we once held as precious and valuable has completely changed. Your values, your hopes, your dreams and desires must change because now Christ becomes more important than anything. And here's the deal, guys. As a Christian, if your values don't change, you will be a miserable Christian. What you were called to do with your life, how you were called to live and sacrifice for Christ, if your values do not change, but just your actions and what you do and what you're supposed to do as a Christian, you will be a miserable person. Because the whole Christian life is built on this idea that Christ is the real treasure, not other things. And so what happens, and I think what happens tragically in our culture often, is that you try to assent to this idea that Christ is everything, that, that you are going to live your life for Christ, but there's really no, like, shift in your values and this causes a lot of heartache it causes down the road for you to say why is this even worth it right like what what is all this for to word it like like paul paul said if this isn't true we are of all men most to be pitied right because we're given everything for this and so if your values aren't shifted and changed by knowing christ and loving christ you are in for a miserable road and so they must change because um we will always desire things we shouldn't if they don't, and our idols will never satisfy us because they cannot and they will not be God. God is God, not other things. Therefore, it is impossible to be satisfied with those other things. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 37 through 39, he said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus tells us that if we don't love him, value him more than our very family, more than everything that we could possibly value and take up our cross, forsaking our lives, losing our lives for his sake, uh, then we will not find true life, true joy. That is the Christian life. That is the heartbeat of the Christian. It says everything is more valuable, uh, or is less valuable, sorry, than Christ. He is more valuable than every other thing in this world. And we must feel this. We must own this. Um, and this is what God is calling us to. And I hope now for the remainder of my time to paint a picture of why that's totally worth it. Why could Paul say to know Christ is of surpassing value? So what is to be gained 
and counting all things as lost. I just have a few things. The first thing is, is knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. He says that is of surpassing, supreme value compared to all the gain, all the status, all the wealth, all the achievements, all of it. All the comforts that Paul had with his former life, all of it is but loss compared to this thing, knowing Jesus Christ. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, nothing, meaningless, in order that I may gain Christ. And so, um, Knowing Christ was of surpassing worth to Paul. His earthly gain, his achievements were trashed now in the view of knowing Jesus Christ, in comparison of knowing Jesus Christ. Jeremiah verses, or chapter 9, verse 20 through 24 says this. It says, that's uh, what God says. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God says, if anyone's gonna boast, let him boast in this, that he knows me, that he knows me, that he knows who I am, that I'm a good God, that I I have steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, right? So God, not just Paul, God himself is telling us that if we're going to boast in anything, if we're going to be proud of anything, if we're going to be excited about anything, let that be that we know him. God is giving us a value system here. He's saying this should be of utmost value, not your might, not your strength, not your wisdom, not your gains, right? Uh, But knowing God. And I just want to ask the question, uh, do we want this? It's good to ask ourselves this. Do we want this? Have you thought this week, man, I want to know God more. You know what I want to do with my day today? You know what's on my to-do list? My to-do list is know God more. Whatever that looks like, I want to do that. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But um, I would just say, and I would ask the question, do we truly desire to know him? Um, If Paul really said, actually, everything, even your very life, is worth losing in comparison to this, do do we really want that? Does that feel like something we really feel at the bottom of my hearts, uh, or our hearts today? Uh, I want to use an analogy. Uh, I took this from Charles Spurgeon. I quote him a lot. He's a great pastor, great with analogies. I suffer in this deeply. I can't think of analogies uh, worth anything, all right? But uh, he was good, and, and so I'm going to, you know, use modern English here. I'm not, I, I thought about reading it word for word, but it was literally like a page and a half of my notes. And I was like, that, I'm just going to be miserable. No one's going to listen to me for that long. Uh, so uh, I'm just going to give you a short version, but he gives this analogy and uh, preaching about this very same subject that I thought was, I read it years ago, and it's always stuck with me. He says, imagine you're back in the Roman times, okay? You're in a Colosseum, surrounded by tons of people. You've been captured, put into slavery, stuck in a jail cell, and two weeks later, after you've been a little bit starved, a little mistreated, someone comes to get you, and they take you out into this big coliseum, okay? It's just like NRG Stadium, okay? Um, you're out there, and there's all these people looking at you. Someone hands you a dagger and walks off. And all of a sudden, on the far end of this coliseum, this gate opens. And out of this gate comes this raging, roaring, huge lion. And the gate shuts behind him. And he's walking, sizing you up, looking at you, and you got that like hair standing up on the back of your neck, right? That fear, like, wait a second, I have a dagger against a lion, okay? I mean, I would take a BB gun over a dagger against a lion, right? You got nothing but a dagger, and this lion, you know, is going to destroy you, right? 
Like, no dagger, you with the dagger. I mean, some of you are probably like, I don't know. If maybe he jumped at me, I got the right angle, like right in the kidneys, and maybe I could take him down. It's not going to happen, right? This line is going to destroy you. And as you tremble there, as the line approaches you, slowly but surely, and you know that certain death is coming and you will be destroyed, all of a sudden, a man jumps from out of nowhere in front of you, in between you and the lion, and he wipes out the lion with one swoop of his sword. And immediately after that happens, as you try to get a good look of the man who saved you, you all of a sudden don't see him anymore, and you're taken immediately out of this Colosseum, and you're brought into a mansion, and for the next couple of weeks and months, all of your needs are met above and beyond what you ever could have imagined. And you would begin to ask the question, who is this man, right? I would like to meet this man and thank him for what he's done for me. I am absolutely grateful. Not only has he saved me from the lion, right, that I could not have destroyed, but he has brought me to a mansion and now takes care of my needs. I want to meet this guy that I might bless him, right, that I might thank him. And, and so you ask someone and they say, well, well, isn't it enough? Isn't it enough that he has done all these things for you, that he saved you from the lion, that he's given you everything you could possibly imagine? And you would probably say, no, that's not enough, right? I mean, I am thankful, but I want to know this man, right? And then you find out that not only did he do this, but your whole life he has been watching you, he has been helping you, and he has done things for you that you couldn't even imagine someone would do for you. And then, better yet, you get news that not only that, but to keep you from getting back into slavery, he has given his very life for you. Now, if you could go through all of that, and this is the point of, of Spurgeon's analogy, uh, and you would not want to know him, doesn't that seem strange? Wouldn't there be a welling of emotion inside of you that says, oh, I want to know this person. I want to thank this person. I want to wrap my arms around this person. I want to serve this person for the rest of my life, right? There would be an obvious desire. I want to know this man who rescued me. And in the same way, because Christ has done a lot more in the gospel than that analogy, right? He has saved us from the roaring lion, Satan, and sin. He has supplied all of our needs. The Bible says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is given to us, right? He has given his life. He has secured your eternal inheritance forever. You'll be with him in pure joy for the rest of your life. And for us to say, eh, it's cool. You know, I'm excited to go to heaven. It's probably gonna be fun. I'm not gonna be you know, sick there anymore. I really long for that. It's probably pretty cool, you know, uh, would, be, would be ridiculous, right? It would be a tragedy for us not to want to know him. And so this text bids us to ask that question, do we want this? And, and I would say, well, how do we pursue this, right? Like, okay, uh, I want to know Christ, like, like, but I don't even know where to start. Like, I have trouble reading my Bible. I can't really pick it up. And I would just say that there's no substitute for pursuing God. We have a culture, like I mentioned before in our Bible, that knows plenty about God, but in some ways maybe struggles to really know God, to take those truths and apply those truths and really have those truths. And so I would say, as we believe the gospel, uh, we are invited into a real relationship with Christ. This isn't some vague notion that we say that sounds cool, but you, if you are found righteous in Christ, you believe the gospel, you are invited into a real relationship to know him. We can really communicate with him. We can really grow in love for him and our desire for him as we do with a close friend or a spouse. So our intellectual knowledge about God is continually transformed into actual experience and worship 
to God and with God. Uh, J.I. Packer, he wrote a book called Knowing God, um, which is awesome. If you haven't read it, it's a really good book. And he says this. He says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule of doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. And so my encouragement to you today, if you say, man, I struggle to do this, like what does this mean to know God? What does this look like in the Christian life? I would simply say, um, we get into the word. We know things about God and we take those things to God, right? He's torn the curtain, right? The veil is no longer there. We have access, if we are in Christ, to the very throne of God to pray to him, to talk with him, to communicate with him. And he communicates back to us. He really does. There is word. And as we bring these things, say, God, do something with this truth. Apply this truth that I might really worship you, that I might really make a relational connection with you. We can't be content to just kind of pretend like we know him or just kind of assume that the Christian life is just kind of vague, not really knowing God until we get to heaven and then we finally get to see him and then we can start um, talking with him. No, no, no. God should be as real to us as the person next to you right now. Uh, and to know him is total joy. So God has invited us into to knowing him. He has made a way that we might know him in the gospel uh, the next thing is being found righteous in Christ. So not only uh, do we gain the knowledge of God, but we also gain the righteousness of God. He's given us his righteousness. Here's what it says. So Paul goes on to say in verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so the gospel is not a righteousness of our own, but one that comes simply and totally through faith in Jesus Christ. We gain the righteousness of God. And at the rock bottom foundation of our joy in the Christian life is this truth that we get the righteousness of Christ. It's not about our religious gain. That thing is but lost to us. It is trash, but we get the righteousness of Christ. What we can never earn has been given to us freely without charge for no reason other than God loves us and decided to do it. This is our very joy and hope. Without it, we are utterly lost and condemned, but with it, we have unbelievable freedom in life and confidence in death, right? Because no, no one can do anything that's going to make God love us less. Because God, knowing, knowing uh, full well who we are, how bad we were, died for us in our place, and we gain his righteousness. So, and not only do we receive his righteousness won for us, but he gives us grace to become more like him. So Paul says that I might also share in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And so in the death of Christ, and it's kind of a theme in Romans too, but we are becoming also more like Christ. So not only does Christ save us, but Christ begins to work at our hearts. He begins to take those bad desires. He begins to take those things uh, away from us. So not only has he uh, destroyed um, the punishment that we deserve because of sin, but now he is destroying the very power of sin in our lives. 
So once when sin had total control and power to make us obey its passions, now through Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit and his righteousness, we have all the tools we need to walk with him and begin to see the power of sin fall away from us. No, it doesn't mean we'll be perfect, but it does mean that we can walk in freedom. We can walk in freedom from the power uh, and the bondage of sin in our lives. We gain that in Christ. So we are hopeless, but then Christ steps in and he doesn't just rescue us from the penalty, he rescues us from the power of it as well. Um, And we have joy in that. And then lastly, uh, he says, I'm becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. And so uh, not only do we get to know Christ, not only do we get Christ's righteousness and perfect merit, but we also get eternal joy in Christ. So this is not just something that happens here or happens for a moment or happens at moments, but it is something that happens forever and ever and ever, this eternal relationship and joy and knowledge and righteousness in Christ goes on forever and ever and ever. Paul has the promise of eternal glory with Christ in view here. This is why he can have confidence in surrendering his earthly gain. Because the eternal gain he is receiving brings far greater joy and can never be taken away from him. Isn't that awesome? For Paul, this is a no-brainer exchange, right? This is like the deal of a lifetime. It doesn't even make sense. It's like for him to exchange his earthly gain to gain eternal joy in Christ is like, duh, right? Like, why, why, why wouldn't I do that? That's perfect, right? It's like a freebie. It's awesome, I quote this a lot. I write this in every Bible I get because it's one of my favorite quotes. Jim Elliott, you guys may have heard of him. He was a missionary to a tribe in Ecuador along with uh, four other men who were all killed by spears in reaching this tribe that had never really made contact with the outside world. And they began to learn their language, fly by in planes and drop things off. And um, they went to visit them one time and had a miscommunication and they all five were killed. Uh, by this tribe because they, they wanted to, to preach the gospel to them. And, and here's something he said in one of his journals. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I, I have loved that quote, and I wish I could live it out more in my life, to be honest with you. But um, Now, he did this in a real, in a real way. This is, he didn't say this after he died. He said this before he died, obviously. Okay, so he didn't know he was going to die by a spear. He just thought about life. He thought about all the things there is to lose in life in light of following Christ. And he said, you are no fool if you give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. All of your gain, all of your stuff, all of your uh, everything that you can possibly mention on this earth is fading away. It is going to end when you end, right? When you die, you can't take it with you. It's a famous saying. You can't take things with you when you die. Um, It's all going to be taken from me. But if you give what you can't even keep in the first place to get what you cannot lose, which is eternal joy in Christ, Christ himself, the knowledge of Christ, you are no fool. You are no fool. You are wise. You are smart, right? And you have the greatest gain. So today, there is a real free invitation to know God. There's no gimmick here. There's no uh, backhanded thing that you have to do. It is a free offer from the God of the universe. Christ is inviting you to make the best exchange of your life 
whether you are a Christian who's doing well, whether you're a Christian who is struggling so hard to believe the gospel and find joy in Christ, or whether you are not a Christian at all and have no desire for Christ at all, he is offering himself. He is taking your sin, your discontentment, your fading earthly gains, and he is giving you his righteousness, his deep, deep joy, and his eternal promises. You have done nothing to deserve it, but yet he gives it to you freely today. And we must believe that. We must cling to that. We must preach to ourselves that to lose our lives, that we might gain Christ, is absolutely and totally worth it. It's worth it. It is worth it. So as we transition today, as we take communion and partake in the Lord's Supper, I just encourage you uh, to be real to be real with the Lord. I encourage you to pray, to ask God to do this, to ask God to take these truths that you know so well about him, that you believe about him genuinely, and to apply those things in such a real and tangible way for you this morning. And to keep pursuing that, because there is such freedom and joy when we get to really feel that connection with Christ, that relationship with Christ, that closeness with Christ. And so if you are not a Christian, um, we ask that you would refrain today from taking communion, and it's not because we want to be exclusive, but simply because it would mean nothing to you. Um, but consider Christ. Consider Christ. There'll be a prayer of belief on the screen that we believe in no way saves you, as we always say, but um, that it is a helpful uh, guide. Uh, for you to kind of pray through these things and pray through what Christ might be doing. There are also going to be prayer partners on the sides here that would love, love to pray with anybody that wants prayer, anybody that wants to confess what's going on in their hearts uh, and, and to, to see newness of life. And um, yeah, like I said, if you're, you're a Christian, I, I would just pray, like don't be content with superficial Christianity, right? Like doesn't satisfy. That's not awesome. That's not uh, good. Um, but ask Christ to do a work in your heart today. If you've been struggling, like you've experienced this, but this has not been the season that you felt like, I feel this way, I would just simply say, go to God. Ask him. Ask him for these things. And as we take communion together, may we be strengthened. May we remember, this is set here to remember the gospel. May we remember his love for us, his call to us, his free offer over and over again for us to repent and to find forgiveness and joy that can never be taken away in him. Um, if you guys are standing with me, we're going to read out of 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. We're going to read this and then pray, and then we'll take communion together. Verse 23, this is Paul. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Bow your heads with me. God, thank you um, 
thank you for communion. It's such a joy for us to have a physical representation of what you physically did for us on the cross and how you won for us our eternal joy in your kingdom (laughs) and how you transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into your everlasting light. And God, I just pray that you would you would speak to your people right now, God. You would encourage those who feel a little awkward right now because they don't really know how to respond. God, that you would do a miracle and help them respond to you, God, and know you. Um, And God, may we cling to the promise right now that if we seek you, we will find you. And God, we believe that. And uh, I just pray that you would flood our hearts and our minds with belief in your gospel, with knowledge of you. God, that you would... Do a shift. God, make a shift again in our desires. May we really value you, Christ, above all other things. May you work this in us. Um, and may, we, may you help us to surrender all the things in our lives, our righteous gain, um, our temporary joys that don't satisfy us. May we surrender those things and find true joy in you. And may we know you. And be found in you, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in you, Jesus Christ. Would you help us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.